all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? <laughs> I'm Rachel. And I'm David. And this is All Bad Things. I just wanted to make you laugh, that's <laughs> yeah, that, all. I know, that was, okay. <laughs> um, we are hopefully going to be recording a bit ahead <laughs> in the days to come. Uh, some transition times might be coming up for my grandparents, so I may be more... Um, in and out of town. I'm sure this is fascinating for everybody to know, but basically I'm saying that um, we may not always have contemporaneous information as far as like our goings on and our housekeeping and whatnot in um, upcoming episodes. So the best way always to stay up to date with us is social meets. <laughs> yes. Twitter, Insta, Facebook at All Bad Things Pod. Um, the discussion group too. Ask to join the discussion group. All you have yeah, to gets, do yeah, gets quite yeah. a bit of activity. It does. Yeah. All you have to do is um, answer a question, and it's just like, what's one of your favorite disasters? Even if you say I don't know, that's okay. It just helps me weed out the weird spammy people. Um, and there's a lot of them. It's weird. No, it's I mean that's odd. that's just that's just how it is today. I like, guess, yeah. like I pretty much since I dabbled in it a, a lot this morning, and I and I was just like, I've got to get off this. But Facebook? pretty much no uh, Twitter. Like oh. like since <laughs> like because when we went to Vegas, like the the first day that you were gone for your conference, mm-hmm. um, I was like, okay, let me uh, drink some THC infused <laughs> root beer. Mm-hmm. Um, and go for a walk, but like I was out on our balcony and smoking a cigarette and I started looking at Twitter and I was like, you know what? I'm not going to look at this for the rest of the time we're on. I'm like, I'm on vacation. Uh, We want to have fun. And I didn't. I didn't look at Twitter at all. Very good. The rest of the time we were there. And now I've started to get back into it and now I'm like, you know, it'd be better just to leave it alone. (laughs) So if you don't see me as much on Twitter, it's because I'm intentionally trying to Mm. wean off of it because it's just... It's the most toxic social media, yeah, for sure. Except for us. Follow us. Yeah, except for us. Yes. We are not toxic. I was literally just Twitter trying is. to convince everybody to follow us, and you're like, oh, Twitter's toxic. It is. But you can follow us anyway. Just follow us. Unfollow everybody yes. else and follow us. Also, um, our um, captain of our All Bad Things Yacht Club Abby yes. has uh, made some designs. Some, we have some merch. For merch, yes. yes. And uh, Lee's ordered a shirt that he liked very much. He said it came out well, so that is available. And um, Michelle, one of our longtime listeners and uh, co-host of the Cornfield Meat uh, podcast, also made her own. I was going to say shirt. they have merch too. Yeah. Yes. Well, no, she made her own shirt of us. And they, I think they made, I thought I saw something yesterday where they, I think they have their own stuff too now. Okay, that's great. Oh, okay. I'm just talking yeah. about it sure. at the moment. Uh, Michelle also like, so she custom designed her own, which was really cool. So we are 100% behind anyone designing 
profiting yeah, from wearing, go for it. Yeah. Because we specifically don't make money off of our podcast, but we have no bones about anybody else making money off of our podcast. <laughs> that is totally fine. Um, and also just like you're out there and you're representing us and that's awesome. And yeah, we really, just, really appreciate that. Just every now and then you have to send us a case of national local beer. <laughs> that's, that's all we ask. That's all you ask. That's all I ask. <laughs> and a box of Slim Jims. <laughs> yes. That, all that too. Actually, I'll take that over the case of national local beer. <laughs> um, so anything you can think of that we need to touch on? I don't think so. Okay. Oh, always feel free to email us, allbadthingspod at gmail. And that's always the best way to... Uh, it's totally fine to communicate via um, Instagram message or Facebook message or whatever. But um, when you're suggesting topics, Gmail is the easiest for me for what it's worth because it's searchable. So if I'm ever like, oh, wait, who suggested this topic? It's easier for me to look up and remember. So I give everybody credit who has suggested a topic. And this week's topic is not only a listener-suggested topic, it is a listener-researched topic, which, again, yes, so grateful for. Because I have been so effing lazy lately. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I have research that I know I need to do, I just have not been able to get started on it. But anyway. It's it's a discipline. It takes takes work. Um, uh, Like Quinn Quincy said, it feels like schoolwork. And he's absolutely right. It, It does. It feels like writing a history report, like a book report or a history report every week. It's a lot. It's a grind. But it's it's fun too. I'm not trying to make it sound like oh, I hate this. But uh Yeah, once I get into it, like I get into it, mm-hmm. but it's the it's the starting it mm-hmm. that seems to be the the problem lately. <laughs> yeah. And so it was this was amazingly helpful. And uh so I'm gonna start and then I'll give credit um to our listener. So on my Brand new laser printed page. I'm going to show you how beautiful the text is in just a minute. New toys. Yes. Uh, This is the story of the airship Italia. Oh, okay. All right. Another. I have not, but another airship. I know what an airship is. Okay. And also, remember, I said that uh, this is a brand new location for us, right? Have we never been to Italy? This isn't in Italy. Oh, okay. Okay. On May 25th, 1928, mm-hmm. the airship Italia crashed into the Arctic Ocean. Oh. We were talking North Pole. Yeah, here. we've definitely never been there. Leading to the deaths of 17 people. Okay. Now, before I start, look at this beautiful, beautiful print. Yeah, that's uh, that's exciting. <laughs> I don't you're notice. Not, I don't notice, notice any. You'll difference. notice it on the pictures. Okay. You'll notice it on the pictures. But doesn't it look like really sharp and well? I'm just very excited. <laughs> I was printing out things for clients on an old inkjet, and it was like, Ugh, it looks a little gross and not very good and streaky. And this is just so much better. So, it was a it was an investment for the business. I'm sure. It's exciting. All right. It is. <laughs> so shout outs. Stephen, one of our longtime listeners, yes. and uh, New Zealander. Uh, oi. Oi. <laughs> or I. Oi. Oi. Whatever. Uh, I, anyway, I'm, I'm sure I'm, he's like, okay, shut I'm, up. I'm sorry, New Zealand. <laughs> sorry, Stephen. Um, 
suggested this topic and did the research for it. Not only did he do the research for it, he did so much really good, really technical research that I didn't get it all into here. Um, and part of the reason was it was so detailed and so technical, I had a hard time like detangling it, if okay, that makes sense. Sure. And that is not Stephen's fault. That is my fault for being an idiot. So I, he's just clearly much smarter than I am. So I'm sorry, Stephen, that this is like the distilled version of your very good research. And also... Try not being so smart next time, Stephen. <laughs> try dumbing it down for me next time, Stephen. You're just too uppity and too intelligent for me. Um, but Stephen did mention that he uh, got most of his information um, from a book, which is uh, like a... Like, oh, wow, he didn't just Wikipedia this. Well, that's, <laughs> really... uh, for what I have in my mind coming up, what I'm being lazy on, uh, I'm going to get a lot of it from a book, so. Is it one of the books you're listening to? No, it's not. Oh, okay. Is it a book that you've read? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I gotcha. Um, so this book is called, and we'll get to, we'll get to all this and who this person is, Umberto Nobile and the Arctic Search for the Airship Italia. So we'll get into who Nobile is. Yeah, this has so. got to be a, wow. This has got to be a, a, oh, yeah. a disaster and a half. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah, so one of the reasons that this is such a great topic for us is because it's a brand new location, the mm-hmm. Arctic Ocean. So let's visit our geography corner. Uh, because we have talked about Antarctica, remember? Um, we have. The, Plane crash. Yeah. Oh, one of them. Erebus. Erebus. The Mount Erebus disaster was in Antarctica. So we've been too close to the South Pole. Now we're talking about the North Pole. So the Arctic Ocean, also called the Arctic Sea, is where the North Pole is located. So unlike the South Pole, which is on a landmass, it's actually on the geographical South Pole is on the continent of Antarctica. Um, the North Pole is just technically in the Arctic Sea or the Arctic oh, Ocean, okay. there's no actual landmass there. However, often, and, and this changes, uh, there's ice, like an ice mass, pack oh, ice. Yeah. Well, well, at least there is for now. Well, yeah, I kind of mentioned that. Um, it, it's shifting ice, ice flows that are at the geographic North Pole. Um, and I literally wrote in, which is melting at an alarming rate due to climate change. So, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if anybody saw what happened to Greenland in the past couple weeks, but it's pretty bad. Didn't they um, uh, experience like 94 degrees or something? And they lost a ton of ice. Uh, That whole region did. Wow. So. And that uh, Greenland, to my recollection, is only habitable like along the shores of certain parts. Yeah, that's it. There's not that many. Exactly. There's not that many people that live there. Greenland becomes more habitable? That's weird. Well, I don't think it's going to be. I mean, well, no, what I'm saying is if the ice melts, then wouldn't it be more habitable because there's less ice on it? Uh, that I don't know. I don't it's, know. It'd be a weird um, <laughs> I don't know. Like, externality. I think it'd be cool to visit Greenland one day, right. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think I'm ever living there. Yeah, right. Uh, so the North Pole, like Antarctica, has always been a very tempting place for people to explore sure. for a very long time because for some strange reasons, some people just have this drive to go to the most extreme places, right? Well, people who want to climb Everest, go into space, uh, explore the bottom of the ocean. And there, like there are a lot of, uh, well, that part of the Earth, too, has a lot of our... Uh, geological secrets buried in it too, like geologists. That's oh, a, like that's a it, very, down, down mm-hmm. into the ice cores yep. and and like uh, historical. You can like 
timestamp things mm-hmm. based yep. on what's down in the ice. Yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a very uh, desired location for geologists. Yes. Um, now, back in these days, I'm not so sure that they were down to that technology, but now, yes, absolutely. Very true. Um, now, there's <laughs> there's a lot of disasters around the North Pole, yes, <laughs> I discovered in this. Um, uh, the, the Titanic being one of them. It wasn't. They weren't in the Arctic Sea. I thought they were. They were in the North Atlantic, I believe. Oh, were they? okay. Yeah, I think you actually maybe right. They were not. If they were well, going well, from well, they, England, well, they hit an iceberg, so I got confused. <laughs> there are icebergs in the North Atlantic. Yes, there are. <laughs> so intrigue about the North Pole started as early as around the 1600s, when people were trying to figure out, like, hey, what is at the North Pole? Santa like, Claus. because if they're not, <laughs> if they're not even like able to go there, how do you? Guess what is there? I can't imagine trying to go there in the 16. Right. Well, no one could. Yeah. It, it wasn't possible technologically, but a lot of people speculated and ended up being correct that it was water, that there was not a landmass, but rather that it was ocean, and that that ended up being correct. A few expeditions did end up going in the general vicinity, mostly in whaling ships, which makes sense because sure. they're in more northern waters mm-hmm. anyway. In 1827, explorer William Edward Perry, which is a name I've heard, but I don't know. It's like one of those. Sounds familiar yeah. to me, too. He decided to head to the North Pole. And here's a fun fact. Sir Perry and I share a birthday. He was ah, born on December 19th as well. Very nice. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he was a pretty famous explorer. And during his expeditions, okay, we're going to get into some pretty intense geography. He reached 82 degrees, 45 minutes north. Oh, yeah, I know so, exactly where that is. I know, right? <laughs> so, latitude, longitude. Let's talk about this for a minute, right? So, I had to look up how to read coordinates. So, you know that there are imaginary lines yes. separating the Earth, right? And yeah. that's how we figure things geographically. There's the equator that runs around the middle of the Earth. There's the prime meridian, which runs it not on both sides, just on one side, north to south. Um, so, when we're talking about degrees north and south, the equator is zero, And then if you go a certain amount south or north, that's 10 degrees, and then 20 degrees, and then 30 degrees, right? So you can either go 10 degrees north or 10 degrees south, then 20 degrees north and 20 degrees south, et cetera. 90 degrees being the North Pole and the South Pole. So 90 degrees north is the North Pole, 90 degrees south is the South Pole. I might be oversimplifying it, but that's the idea. Now, the whole minutes thing, that's even more confusing it's not about like actual Actual time each each division of each 10 degrees is divided into 60 segments and that's quote minutes okay and then each of those is divided into 60 and that's quote seconds okay so each segment is divided into 360 right and so that's where minutes and seconds come from. It's not actual minutes and seconds. It's subdivisions of degrees. Okay. So anyway, so when they say he reached 82 degrees, 45 minutes north, it just means he got past 82 degrees, basically, right? And, and um, almost to 83 degrees. Or me, I, say, I think I said each 10. So I may have actually said it wrong that it's not between every 10 degrees. It's each individual degrees degree is separated into 360 segments and those are the seconds anyway either way i'm just going to use google map <laughs> he got almost to 83 degrees north and that was a record at, at the time okay okay and 90 degrees being the actual north pole so uh 
So, oh, and he survived, which was a big deal. Uh, Sure. And and this was almost 200 years ago, which is a big deal. So that was a pretty big feat. It took about 50 years for his record to be beaten. Uh, So it stood for a while. Um, And a ship called the Polaris sailed from New York in the summer of 71, reaching 82 degrees, 29 minutes north. Now, why 29 is farther north than 45? I don't know. But let's just say they beat him by 16 minutes. Sure. (laughs) Um, Now, lots of shit went down on that expedition including a possible mutiny and or murder, but we're not getting into that (laughs) right now. Suffice it to say, a lot of shit has gone down in the quest for the North Pole. So by the late 19th century, the true North Pole, meaning 90 degrees north, was still in many explorers' sights, and attempts were being made with newer technology to reach it by sea and also by air. Sure. So in both 1896 and 1897... Salomon August Andre, a Swedish explorer, among other things, he was kind of like a Renaissance man, tried to reach the geographic North Pole by hydrogen balloon, essentially oh, a hot okay. air balloon. Yeah. Um, side note, does anyone else get really weirded out by hot air balloons? I think they're super dangerous. I would rather go up in a helicopter, in a plane, in like a fighter jet. Hot air balloons seem really dangerous to me. Well, they do because you're exposed. Well, and it's a bunch of gas with a flame. I know. That doesn't make any sense to me no, either. No, it, I don't like it at all. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, his so we made two attempts in 1896 and 1897. His 1896 trip literally ended before it started. He literally couldn't get off the ground because of the wind conditions. It just wasn't, it had to be aborted. The 1897 trip managed to go much, much worse. <laughs> um, so he had a rocky launch from Svalberg, Sweden in July of 1897. Now, just to clarify, we know Sweden is in the Arctic Circle, right? Very mm-hmm. far north. But Svalbard is like an island even farther north. Oh, okay. That's part of Sweden. So we're basically talking like the closest landmass to the Arctic, to the actual Arctic North Pole, rather. So, so, so we, he launched. It didn't go too well, but he was up in the air. Then the balloon was able to travel almost 300 miles or 475 kilometers successfully over the course of two days. And then it ran out of hydrogen and crashed into the ice of the Arctic Ocean. And I have a picture of that. And look how sharp and clear that picture is. Oh, wow. But that is a crashed air balloon. (laughs) And a couple of guys standing like, 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 what the fuck are we going to do now? (laughs) Like, like we can't exactly walk home. Right. In the early days of photography. Yeah. So, remember I said there's no land (laughs) at the North Pole or near it. So, this is pack ice. (laughs) They're just on ice, right? It's but it's still basically like crash landing on land. Oh sure, they, I mean they it's so. They did live. Yeah. They did survive it, right? Um, but <laughs> so they were not prepared to crash. <laughs> well, who is? And even though they actually made it back to a deserted island, like land off the coast of Svalbard, they were so exhausted from their trip that they died. So uh, yeah, they I made it, it all the way back yeah. and then died of exhaustion. And then that whole expedition, nobody knew what happened to them until the 1930s when they discovered the bodies. 
Oh, okay. Isn't that And interesting? the balloon? Did they ever find... Well, obviously they did. There's a picture well, of it. that was a picture taken by the expedition, I oh, think. Oh, okay. Know? So, um, but anyway, that's potentially a bad thing we can cover someday. Sure. It's very interesting. So, who technically, quote, discovered the North Pole, like got there first, is kind of controversial. So, explorer Frederick Cook claimed he reached the North Pole in April of 1908, along with two Inuit men. And as we know, Inuits are the native indigenous peoples of the northern areas of North America and Greenland. Cook even wrote a book, Cook's book. <laughs> it was a cookbook. <laughs> Claimed, my or called, My Attainment of the Pole. So clearly he was like, yeah, I got to the North Pole. More specifically, Cook actually claimed that he reached, quote, a spot which was as near as possible, end quote, to the North Pole. And remember, the North Pole is technically, and it's in the sea, on ice of the sea, so the ice mass would be constantly shifting. It's possible it would just be open ocean at times, you know. Um, And I did not get into this, but I seem to recall something like the magnetic pole can shift. So I don't know. I don't know. I think I've heard that before, too. Yeah. I'm, I'm again, too stupid to be able to um, <laughs> get into that. But anyway. But substantiating Cook's claims actually proved to be pretty difficult. The explorer most frequently credited with being the first to reach the North Pole is Robert Perry. Another name. It's P-E-R-A-R-Y. In 1909, the year after Cook, even though his claim is also disputed and controversial. So supposedly, Perry set out with a 50-men strong party, along with over 200 dogs and a bunch of sleds. This was a big, right? Big operation. Exactly. Big expedition. But the time by the time they advanced close to the pole, it was only Perry, explorer Matthew Henson, and four Inuit men uh, named Uta, Siglo, Egingwe, and Ukia hope I pronounced all those correctly, um, who continued on. So it started out as a huge expedition, ended up down to six men. Matthew Henson claimed to be the actual first person to reach what was believed to be the geographic North Pole. He arrived about 45 minutes before Perry. Now that is um, notable, especially because Henson was an American born in Maryland to two free people of color. So he was an African-American. Interesting. And potentially an African-American man was the first person to reach the geographic North Pole, which is pretty remarkable in the early 1900s. Um, In any event... No, no. Nothing. It would take decades longer. It would take until 1968 for someone to reach the geographic North Pole with no controversy and nobody disputing it. So anyway... It's a tough place to get to. (laughs) It is a little bit. So going back uh, to the early days of of exploration, eventually, of course, aviation technology evolved into airplanes and attempts were made to fly into the Arctic and to the North Pole. Remember, all of the other expeditions had been by sea or by, quote, land, meaning the ice, right, going across the ice, because we're not necessarily talking, at least not back at this time, it's probably very different now, but we're not talking like um, ice on a lake that might crack through or not we're talking like gigantic tip of the iceberg type of ice oh, sure. that has massive amounts underneath that you're not falling through this hundreds ice. of feet thick right it, you're basically on land it's yeah. just ice yeah exactly in 1912 three separate arctic expedition parties had flown north toward the pole 
and had gone missing. Oh. So it was obviously a really treacherous mission. In September 1914, Jan Nagorski, a Polish aviator, got as far as 76 degrees north in a plane and survived and returned home. So it was like, okay, well, we're getting closer. <laughs> and uh, it's living. <laughs> so in these early days of Arctic exploration, there was a prominent figure, a man named Roel Amundsen. I believe he, yeah, he was Norwegian. And I've got a picture of him. It's probably... Um, Let's see. Amundsen. 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 He's the guy at the top. How is it spelled? A-M-U-N-D-S-E-N. A-M-U-N-D. Amundsen? Okay. Amundsen. Amundsen. Amundsen, probably, yeah. He's the guy with the fur who looks very much like an old explorer. Yes, he does. (laughs) And I'll get to this guy in a minute. Yeah, he looks like he's uh, rolled hard and put away wet, this guy. Yeah, and um, he's no older than 55 in that picture. Oh my god. (laughs) That's only 13 years away from me. (laughs) Holy shit. He looks like he's 75, 80. I was going to say like 85, yeah. (laughs) So, he had been a part of the first exploration to traverse through the Northwest Passage, which is getting from the Atlantic to the Pacific by way of the Arctic Ocean. Okay. Okay. In, and that was in 1906. He was also the leader of the first expedition to the South Pole in 1911. So after his trip to the South Pole, he decided, okay, flight is the best way to explore these extreme locations. So he became the first Norwegian person in history to hold a private pilot's license. Oh, mm-hmm. interesting. He was also somewhat of a um, beloved national figure. Sure. Because uh, it obviously it brought a lot of pride to his country that he was... Um, accomplishing some pretty amazing feats in exploration. In 1925, Amundsen set his sights on the North Pole. He's like, okay, here's the next place for me to, um, for me to conquer. Father of fellow explorer Lincoln Ellsworth, a man named James Ellsworth, was a wealthy American who made his money in coal. Ah. So you can imagine how much money he had to burn. Ha uh-huh, ha, get it? Coal, yes. burn. <laughs> He put up $100,000, which is about a million and a half today, to fund this expedition. That's actually not probably all that much for somebody, some rich rich guy in coal. But anyway. At that time, no. That's probably like finding $5 in, this, in your pocket to us. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> they, so, uh, so, so that's how the funds got put up. And they settled on using two... Dornier, I hope I'm, lots of things to pronounce here. Dornier Wall Flying Boats. And I'm going to show you a picture of the flying boat. And we'll get to this guy later. That's the flying boat. Oh, yeah, well, a seaplane. Right, yeah, yeah, basically, exactly. It's more more plane than boat. Sure, but But it it can land on water. It can float, exactly. Um, And this expedition didn't go well. (laughs) That seems to be the track (laughs) record so far. That's the trend here. (laughs) One of the planes lost power. And was forced to land, so the two planes got separated. That's not good when you're exploring the Arctic, right? Um, After three days, they actually were able to reunite the two planes, which is pretty remarkable. Um, And after several weeks, a lot of unsuccessful takeoff attempts, the crew finally was able to return home in one of the planes. They had to abandon the other. Sure. So, Well, at least they all made it. Yeah, they did. Now, they had gone missing for a while, mm-hmm. right? Um, and during this time, James Ellsworth died. Oh, so, so they did not Lincoln Ellsworth, 
arrived home to find that his father had died. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay. Yeah. His dad right. died not While he knowing, was away. And also thinking his son was missing and possibly dead. So that's kind of a sad story there. So after this rather traumatizing attempt to reach the North Pole, Amundsen decided, okay, never mind airplanes. Like, that's not the way to go. This didn't work out well. He decided an airship would be a better option. So quickly hearkening back to our Hindenburg ep- episode, uh, an airship, Zeppelin, not not a blimp. Those are those are slightly blimp different. Blimp is different, yes. Right. A semi-rigid air, airship has like a... St- steel skeletal structure Mm -hmm. with a skin over it, essentially, in a blimp-like shape, but it floats using gas. Yes. Is the idea. And then it usually has, like, a, um, I forget what they call, a gondola Mm -hmm. at the bottom, which is where all the navigation takes place and and such, yeah. And where you can hang out and smoke. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What could go wrong? (laughs) Nothing. So part of the reason that Amundsen preferred the airship was because it could fly in harsher conditions than planes at the time. Aviation technology was still really early. Airships were a little farther advanced than airplanes. They were at this time. Yes. So so they were. It would not last that much longer. No. No. And then and then airplanes would become the technology that was developed over airships. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, Another reason was that. Uh, airships at the times had better range, could go farther, and they could carry more stuff. Sure. Now, there were issues with airships, too. Wind could really affect uh, their range. If there was good tailwinds, they could make it pretty far, um, and it could go along a good clip. But if the winds were going against the ship, it could really, like, lessen the, the range, make it a lot harder to to fly. Sure. <laughs> That's what I was trying to say. Um, Additionally, the gas used to give airship their lift had to be really carefully monitored. If too much gas was fed in while in flight, the ship could literally burst like a balloon, and then everyone's SOL. But on descent, the gas contracts, and the skin could start to lose its shape, which also is no good. So to control for this, they had these little fabric containers called balloonettes, on the airships, and based on the distance the airship needed to cover on its given flight, these blue nets would either be would be filled with different amounts and mixtures of hydrogen and air. So it's like a whole uh, a whole science behind it. So now at this point, I will introduce the other man in this photo, and hopefully, I'll remember to put all these photos up on Instagram and everything. That is Umberto Nobile. Okay. And I'm imagining it's Nobile because he's Italian. Sure. And it's. It's spelled N-O-B-I-L-E. So I don't think it's noble. I would think it'd be mm. nobile, right? Yeah, probably. Sure. Or nobile? Yeah, get, get to us, uh, our Italian listeners. Yeah, Reach exactly. <laughs> so he was an Italian engineer and aviator, and he was fascinated by aeronautical engineering, inspired by one Ferdinand von Zeppelin. Ah, yeah. yes. yes. Uh, that's Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin to you. Oh, sorry. Yes, yes, yes. Who we uh, determined in our Hindenburg episode has one of the most metal names ever. Yes. Mm-hmm. Literally. Just has one of the greatest names ever <laughs> yes. in, in the history of humans. Uh-huh. Nobile had designed the N1, the most advanced semi-rigid airship at the time, which was built in Italy in 1923. A couple of years later, the N1 was put up for sale for $100,000, so this is still about $1.5 million, and Lincoln Ellsworth, 
And you're like, hey. Right. I got that scratch. Presumably having just inherited a shit ton of money from his rich dad. <laughs> yeah, that too. Bought it for Amundsen's next expedition. And it was retrofitted for harsh Arctic conditions and renamed the Norge. The Norge. The Norge. And so in April 26, the Norge headed for the North Pole with a 16-man crew that included Amundsen, Nobile, and Ellsworth, Lincoln Ellsworth. On May 12, 1926, the expedition reached its intended goal of being the first flight over the geographic North Pole. So they did not land, but they did fly over the geographic North Pole. Yeah, well, you wouldn't be able to land that. Because the landing that thing is requires a crew on the ground. Because it has to get anchored mm-hmm. and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. that's right. That, we talked about that mm-hmm. on the, the Hindenburg, yeah. Now, this is the 1920s, and it's all based out of um, Norway and, and Italy especially, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we know that there's some drama going on in Europe Just at this time. a little bit. Uh, so we're in the shadows of World War One, ramping up for World War II eventually. And as far as Italy went, one, Benito Mussolini had taken office, air quotes, taken office in 1922 through a coup d'etat. So this whole Italian airship thing was being conducted under a fascist government, mm-hmm. under Mussolini. So um, Nobile was Italian. Amundsen was Norwegian, and when the Norge returned from its successful mission to the Pole, Nobile was hailed as the hero of the expedition, in, especially in Italy. Now, that made Amund- Amund- uh, this made Amundsen super angry, because he basically was like, I fucking hired this guy. This is just my, my hired pilot, Nobile. This was my thing. This was, this was my expedition. So he was kind of petty and upset about well, it. Well, let's face it, he is a trust fund baby, so of course he is. No, Ellsworth is the trust oh, fund baby. Oh, I'm sorry. is the national hero of Norway, so oh, it, got, okay. it got a little nationalistic in here, too. I keep getting my... Uh, um, Characters mixed up. My white Anglo-Saxon people mixed up. <laughs> it's easy. Um, he lashed out, so Amundsen... Mr. Fur here, lashed out pretty hard at Nobile, though Nobile didn't really strike back. Now, there are conflicting reports as to whether Nobile was a supporter of Mussolini or not. So it's anyway, there's a lot of nationalism going on. Here. Sure. At any rate, that was pretty much the end of Amundsen and Nobile's partnership in exploration. Rightfully so, so. sounds like. So Nobile was like, OK, well, fair enough. I'm going to strike out on my own. I'm going to... Um, explore the Arctic myself in an airship. And there was supposed to be a new airship built for this flight, uh, three times bigger than the Norge. So that would have made it pretty uh, significant. The Super Norge. (laughs) Yeah, Super Norge. But the Italian Air Force canceled its construction. So instead, Nobile uh, built a new airship himself, uh, similar to the Norge, named the Italia, and this is the Italia, so that's that, the picture. There. Okay. It looks. It looks pretty like, damn huge. It looks very large. I think uh, yes, I do give the dimensions. Um, is this what the Hindenburg looked like for the most part? The Hindenburgs, uh, to me, seem to be bigger. It's less sleek, right? right. A little more fat yes. around, and and a little shorter. A little stumpier? No, I no. want to say even longer. Bigger. Yeah. Okay. Hindenburg was it, pretty this big. This is a, a tough scale to see in this picture. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, so I, it, I wonder who's taking this photograph. It must be coming from another, a plane. Or another, yeah, or another, um, an, another airship or a plane, yeah. I okay. Think. Interesting. 
so this was the Italia. Funding was provided by the city of Milan and the Italian oh. Geographic Society, and it took from 1925 to 1927 to build. It was an improvement on the Norge. It was lighter and able to carry a bigger payload. So the Italia was 347 feet long, 106 meters. It had a diameter of about 64 feet, or 19 and a half meters, and held about 654,000 cubic feet, or 18,500 cubic meters, of gas. And it could carry a payload of 20,900 pounds, or 9,500 kilograms. And its top speed was about 70 miles per hour. Wow, really? Kilo- kilometers per hour. Okay. Yeah, that's a pretty good clip, huh? It is, yeah. yes. So... Now for the flight of the Italia. Nobile and his crew took, uh, and his crew, uh, I think, wait, I think it was 19 including Nobile. Or maybe it's Nobile plus 19. Uh, No, I think it was 19 total. Okay. Um, They took off from Milan on April 15th, 1928. Now they weren't going directly from Milan to the Arctic. They were... Um, puddle jumping, kind of, right? They were going, they were making their way to the Arctic Circle, like Norway, Svalbard, whatever, and then they would go um, for their, to the actual North Pole. So its first stop was Stolp, Germany, um, after an initial 30 hour flight. So they went from Milan to Germany, and things did not go well on that flight. So the Italia had to fly through hailstorms. Can you imagine flying in an airship through hailstorms? Hell no. And bad wind gusts. Uh, and when it when the airship was inspected in Stolp, they found damage on the tail fin, propellers, and the envelope. Now, the envelope is like the There's skin the of skin. the ship. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. It took 10 days to repair the ship in Stolp so that it could take off for its next, des- next destination of Norway. And the second leg was even further delayed by more bad weather. They had to wait out the bad weather, basically. So it finally left Stolp on May 3rd. Man, this just sounds like... It, it's just <laughs> not going well from the it's beginning, It's just like, right? cut your losses, fellas. Mm-hmm. So it left on May 3rd for Norway, but it was forced to land in Finland the next day because of even more severe weather. So it's just bad luck all the way around, right? Then weather on the ground in Finland caused some minor damage to the Italia, but they were still able to take off on May 5th, a couple days later, for Kings Bay, Norway. Okay. So the Italia had to fight winds. <laughs> it's just, just again. It's just all bad. And even engine failure. But they did actually manage to land successfully at Kings Bay, Norway on May 6th. <laughs> it's just, it's like a big flashing signs telling them maybe stop. you just should stop turn back this, right maybe this just isn't the time <laughs> just this isn't your time Novile. i'm sorry so the plan was for the italia to make five separate exploration flights from king's bay into the arctic okay so they were just gonna go back and forth yeah okay yeah mm-hmm. so the first flight uh and i think <clears throat> i get into this in a bit um the, the idea was that they were gathering data. Sure. Was sort of the thing. So that's why it was an exploration, not of the physical location, but rather like the surroundings, sure. I guess. So. so the first of these five planned exploration flights started on May 11th, but that expedition was aborted. Eight hours into it, they had to turn back around because of ice on the skin of the ship and other issues because of the extremely harsh conditions. They're flying into one of the coldest places on Earth. Oh, yeah. You know. 
The second flight took place on May 15th, much more favorable weather conditions than had plagued the ship until that point. It was able to successfully complete a 60-hour, 2,500-mile or 4,000-kilometer flight, and they gathered a lot of important data during that flight. So that was Mm. the second. Finally, something went right for the Italia, and the second flight was a successful expedition. Now, we come upon the third flight, the ill-fated third exploration flight of the Italia. So the last flight of the Italia launched on the morning of May 23rd, 1928. Now, there was a crew of 19. 16 of them were on board Okay. At, on this flight for reasons I, I didn't see or look into. Um, three of them remained back. I'm guessing just they didn't all go all the time. Maybe they needed... because Well, they probably uh, had to rotate some people out here Right, or, or um, they didn't always need the whole crew for right. every expedition. They're like, look, this time we're going to well, need the engineers time, for this this time. So they're yeah. probably a little bit better at it. They're Maybe. like, okay, this is what we need. This is what we don't need. Mm-hmm. You three, you can hang back. Right. So there were 16 people on board, including Nobile. As far as I could tell, he was probably on everyone because... I would think because so. Because he's the, the head he's of the this, right? And also, Nobile's fox terrier, Titina. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah, so he brought his little doggy. Um, uh, spoiler alert, we do not need to give a trigger warning for the doggy. It actually turns out okay for the doggy. I was just going to ask that. <laughs> no, but I, no, I figured, okay. I figured okay. the dog exactly. made it. The dog does make it. Um... The plan for the flight was to drop a three-man party at the North Pole. So okay. this was like a deployment. Sure. And then they were going to come back for them later. Now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to be one of those like three guys. Idea. No. <laughs> hell no. <laughs> so, because. G- given all the bullshit they've had to go through just to get here in the first place. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, no, no. <laughs> so because the ship couldn't land on ice, that's not like it, oh, it can just drop gently onto the ice. The idea was they would anchor the airship with a weighted line and then winch the men and their supplies down I was going to gonna say, ice. that's how mm-hmm. they would have to do it. Yep. Because, I mean, landing an airship is, all, is essentially it's the same thing as docking a boat. Right, there you're still anchors. you're still floating. Anchors, you and just ties. have to be tied down. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. so you don't float away. Right, yes, and the Italia did successfully reach the North Pole just after midnight on May twenty fourth. Yay! Unfortunately, <laughs> once again, the Italia was plagued by bad weather, and the wind made it impossible for them to drop anybody off. Sure. So it's just like, okay, well. We did get to the North Pole. Those three guys are like, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> we like, can't we, drop anyone they're like, off. They're, they're, like, they're like, we lost the drawing straws. That's why we're the three. <laughs> right? They go through the short straws. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so instead, they were like, well, let's just do a little ceremony. Like, oh, we reached the North Pole sort of a thing. So they dropped an Italian flag, a flag of Milan, and a large wooden cross given to them by the Pope himself oh. to the ice at the North Pole. So it's just sort of like planting the flag on the moon, right? Just sure. like a little, hey, we got here, we did this. Go Italy, uh, go Milan, yay Pope. Here we go. <laughs> yay Pope. <laughs> yay Pope, here we go. Here we go, yay Pope, here we go. <laughs> so the bad winds continued because this is the story of the Italia. Uh, as it started to make its trip back to Norway. So they're flying back to Norway. Around 9.25 a.m. on May 25th, 
the ship started to lose altitude because of a jammed or possibly frozen, given the conditions, elevator control mechanism. Okay. Okay. So from what I could tell, it was a valve that controlled gas, which then controlled the elevation, sure, right? Sure, which probably controls everything else. Right. Yes. Now, Nobile ordered that the engines should be stopped to avoid the ship crashing uncontrollably. So thrust plus a loss of altitude would definitely equal a crash and burn situation, right? So his idea was we stop the thrust sure. and now we're floating right. to the ground instead of flying, like into the ground. We'll just let gravity take over. Yeah, basically. And as the ship lost its thrust, its descent slowed. So that actually narrowly avoided a crash on the ice. I was going to say, that, so, so, that sounds like what they wanted to happen. Right, right. So instead, the ship actually started to slowly rise again because of the static lift produced by the ship's hydrogen. Sure. So the gas was doing its work and like lifting them back like, up, no, right? we're not going down just yet. Mm-hmm. Now, at first, Nobile wanted to release the gas to stop... Or, or slow this ascent, but his crew suggested that they actually allow the ascent partially to get them high enough to reach above the fog and the clouds closer to the surface of the ice so they are farther from the surface of the ice so they could spot the sun okay. to get a navigational reading. So, okay, let's, sure. just, let's let ourselves not go uncontrolled up, but just enough, you know, that so we, we can, can get start, our bearings. Exactly, let's get our bearings. So Nobile agreed they were able to get above the clouds at an altitude of about 1,000 feet or 300 meters. Now they were flying with the nose of the ship slightly pointed down. So that was going to kind of keep them from going up and up and up and up and up. So they were trying to maintain their altitude relatively low and not just keep going up. So they're slightly tilted down, nose down, and trying to kind of maintain this low um, drift, I guess. About 10.25 a.m., so an hour after the initial incident, the crew noticed that the tail of the ship was starting to sink. So instead of being slightly nose down, they're starting to go nose up a bit. And it also started to descend about 300 feet per minute. Now, that's not incredibly fast, Mm -hmm. but it is descending again. Uh, Nobile ordered the engines to be powered up again to try to gain altitude. Now they're going nose up, so if you power up, the idea is you can just keep lifting, right? So that kind of makes sense. Um, uh, So he ordered crew member Renato Alessandri to check gas valves at the tail of the envelope. And I believe Steve, I didn't put it in here, but I believe Steven said it was actually a pretty treacherous thing he was asking him to do because he had to go outside the airship to do that onto a ladder to check these valves. Yeah. Okay. Now, pretty soon, it became clear to Nobile there was no way to avoid crashing. So they were crashing tail first, Mm -hmm. basically. So he ordered, okay, stop the engines, cut off the engines so we're not, like, slamming to the ground. And around 10.28 a.m. on Friday, May 25th, 1928, the Italia crashed into the ice of the Arctic Ocean, tail first, about 180 miles or 290 kilometers northeast of Kings Bay. Okay. The gondola, so the bit at the bottom that holds the crew, right? And the rear engine car ripped from the rest of the ship Mm. when the Italia crashed. Ten members of the crew, including Nobile and including Titina, the little Mm -hmm. fox terrier, were basically like spilled onto the ice along with a bunch of supplies. 
Um, Nine of them and the dog survived the fall, but engine mechanic Vincenzo Pamela died on impact. Oh, okay. So I guess they were close enough that it wasn't so high that they weren't going to survive except for one man, Pamela, who, who did die. Now, the remains of the ship, so we're only talking about 10 people. There's six other people on board. And further, this ship has fallen apart. Parts of it have been ripped apart. So the envelope, without the gondola, without the rear engine, started drifting away sure. from the main crash site. Because it's along, still got all the hydrogen trapped yes, in there. Along with the six remaining crew members. Physicist. Oh. Yeah, they're oh, still in there. Jesus. Aldo Pontramoli. Uh, who was a physicist, journalist Ugo Lago, engine mechanics Callisto Chiocha, Chiocha, and Attilo Carati, Rigo Renato Alessandri, and wait, did I just mention? Yeah, he was the guy who had to go check the valve. That's right. And chief engine mechanic Ettore Arduino. Now, Arduino had some pretty quick thinking and pretty selfless thinking as he's drifting away in this envelope he grabbed every supply he could and threw it down to the ice to the survivors sure so he was like here guys we're We're drifting away we're not gonna need this right here's here take this take this take this yeah we're not getting out of this one so uh then arduino and the remaining five people were blown away in the remains of the envelope and were never seen again Mm. So they so they never found the envelope. Really, found the other six people or the envelope. Wow. Um, uh, I forget if I put this in here or not, so I'm going to say it now. The people who did make it to the ice saw smoke rising in the distance. Uh, That was probably from Mm. the crashed envelope. Yeah. So now we're into the survival part of this story. Oh sure, well yeah yeah. So the nine people who survived the impact. Uh, impact initially were Nobile, who had a broken arm and a broken leg. Remember, they still fell. Mm-hmm. So there were injuries. They fell on new ice. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, <clears throat> also, a there's cra- probably, I mean, there's probably packed snow, but that's almost as, that's right. almost as bad. Right. Packed snow when it gets really cold oh, is yeah. hard as a fucking rock. I mean, no one made it, uh, made it landed without scrapes at the very yeah. least. Um, he also had a cracked rib and oh, a head God, wound. Hurts. He initially mm. got knocked out. So sure. he got knocked unconscious. Um, film Finn Malgram um, was a meteorologist, physicist, and explorer. He hurt his shoulder on landing and possibly had internal injuries. Um, Frantisek Behunek, a Czechoslovakian physicist. Navigator Adalberto Mariano. Navigator Filippo Zappi, who had fractured ribs. Navigator and hydrographer Alfredo Viglieri, elevator operator and chief technician Natale Cecchione, Cecchione, whose legs were badly broken, both mm. of his legs, operator and engineer Felice Trajani, and radio operator Giuseppe Biaggi. So the, the shoulder injury cracked ribs of um, Malmgren, Nobile obviously was badly hurt, uh, Cecchione was badly hurt. Um, the others had actually managed to get away with bumps, bruises, scrapes. Um, I think I read one of them like fell into a snowbank, so he wasn't so badly hurt because hmm. there was actually some powder. So the survivors who could, who were mobile, quickly gathered the supplies that had fallen and had been thrown by Arduino. Uh, and now these, these supplies were pretty good. They included a tent, sleeping bags, 
45 days worth of provisions. It's pretty good. Yep, and included pemmican and... It's uh, about as best as you could hope for right? in this situation. A flare gun. Very good. Unfortunately, the flares didn't fit the gun, so it was kind of useless. Oh, okay. <laughs> Somebody should have checked that probably <laughs> yeah, right? before they took off. A Colt revolver and ammo, uh, and radio parts and batteries. So radio operator Giuseppe Biaggi was able to fashion an antenna for the radio and was be, was able to begin transmitting a distress signal every 55 minutes, which was prearranged which, with their um, support ship, the Cita de Milano. Okay. So that was the idea. Like, hey, if anything happens, every this, 55 this minutes we're going to be putting out this distress signal. Uh, now, a container of red paint that had been on board the plane had fallen to the ground Very in the good. crash. It left a long strip of red mm-hmm. on the ice, and they used the rest of the paint to, to paint the tent uh, so that it would be more visible from the air. Sure. Uh, a movie, I think, was later made about this whole thing called The Red Tent, and that was oh, why. Because okay. of the... um, So after setting up the tent... Uh, they put Nobile and Ciccioni together in a sleeping bag, like, because they were the worst wounded. So the, they, they they were put in a sleeping bag for warmth and for recovery, right? Um, and, and to keep themselves sheltered. And now, even though they did have shelter and provisions, remember, they're still, they're still on, on the fucking, ice, yeah. floating in the middle of the Arctic Ocean, injured, cold, and obviously very scared. Now, Phil... F- I keep calling him Phil Malgren. Finn Malmgren was especially despondent. Like, he was not handling this well, which, who can blame him? Um, Once he announced he was going to go drown himself, uh, and then later he walked away with the revolver, Uh, and his fellow survivors intervened both times. Like, come on, dude, hang in there. Like, don't fall apart on us. So... We've got chocolate. <laughs> We've got pemmican. Yeah. We've got jerky. Yeah, hey. Um, on May 29th, so we're going to get into the whole rescue in a minute, but just to kind of go, this is going to be a long ordeal, and the whole timeline is very hard to put together, but this is part of what was confusing me. But anyway, on May 29th, a few days after the crash, Malmgren used the revolver for a much more helpful purpose to the party, he spotted and shot a polar bear. Oh, wow. With yeah. a revolver? With a, with a Colt revolver. Well, he had to shoot it multiple times. I was going to say. Yes. <laughs> well, I guess you get one good headshot in there and it, they'll it probably take that, it down. Mm, trigger warning for animals. It said that he initially shot and wounded it so then he could get closer to it and kill it. Um, the meat of the bear added to their provisions, obviously, and they were able to skin it and use the skin oh, floor absolutely. of the tent absolutely. So that, to help keep them warm. Now, I am a vegan. However, survival this situations, is, you do what you got to do. Exactly. I get it. So, on the next... Well, either that or the damn... I mean, polar bears are very aggressive. Oh, yes. It could have so. killed them, too. Yeah. So, the next day, on May 30th, Finn Malmgren, Mariano, and Zappi, Zappi decided to set off on a, re- on a search party and try to get help for the group. They were hoping to reach the northern part of Spitsbergen in Svalbard, Svalbard, I'm doing really badly pronouncing things, within a few weeks of setting off. So they were hoping they could trek across the ice and get to land. Now, the rest of the group was not too happy about this idea, like the idea of (laughs) don't split up, right? Mm -hmm. It's a little scary, Um, including Nobile, 
who, remember, is basically the captain of this crew. Mm-hmm. But Malmgren talked him into it, and so he gave his blessing to the search party. And so the party hiked across the ice for days. Sure. On June 15th or 16th, so oh, this is wow. almost three weeks I was later. Say, yeah. yeah. Malmgren collapsed from exposure, frostbitten, a bunch of other stuff. He told Mariano and Zappi to carry on without him, and he died and his body was never found. Mm. So now we're going to go back a little bit and talk about the search and rescue efforts. So, like I said, the timeline of the rescue efforts is a little muddy, and I found some conflicting information. So this, hopefully, there's some jumping back and forth. Hopefully this will all be understandable. Um, If you want more information about the specifics about this whole disaster, including the timeline of the search and rescue efforts, there is actually a really cool interactive website, very visual about this whole thing. The address is italia.tass.com. And I got a lot of info from this. And it's a really cool thing, too, because as you scroll down, the, I would imagine it's better a better experience on a desktop or a laptop than it is on mobile. But as you scroll down, like things appear and they show the interactive maps and stuff. So as you scroll down, they go through the whole story, including visually. It's very cool. It's a really cool website. I, I recommend it. So apparently the Cita de Milano, the support ship, knew something was wrong with the Italia pretty quickly, like pretty much right away, like day of. And the captain of the ship, Giuseppe Romagna Magiona, reached out to Norway for help, hiring two whaling boats to set out to search for the crew. So the search really started right away. Sure. Uh, The Cita de Milano made its own rescue effort, but couldn't break through the ice to get Mm. as far as they wanted. But they were able to drop off a small search party who began a ground or (laughs) ice search with sleds and dogs. Sure, but I mean... This rescue was hugely treacherous. Yeah. Because... What are the fucking odds mm -hmm. you're going to... Yeah. So just an overview. Rescue efforts began right away, but it involved six countries... 18 ships, 21 planes, 1,500 people, and lasted two months. That's what this whole thing... The the long and the short of it is this is what this involved, right? Obviously, the elements, and and there's also a lack of international coordination. So this search... Very much so. This was not very well coordinated. In this time of of history. Right? So... Several interceptions of the Italia survivors' May Day were were made over the first couple of weeks, but with varying results. Um, in some cases, people didn't realize what they were intercepting. Um, however, on June third, a Soviet amateur radio operator named Nikolai Schmidt in <laughs> I just realized why is his name Nikolai Schmidt? <laughs> Maybe he's Russian-German. I don't know. He intercepted the Mayday signals from the Italia. He knew about the missing airship, and so he sent a cable to Moscow to the USSR Friends of the Radio Society. Because he's an amateur radio guy, so he passed it on to other radio people. And then that was forwarded to the Italian government. So... One of the rescue efforts to find the Italia were from... Roald Amundsen. So our old pal Roald, on Saturday night, May 26th, the day after the crash, was in Oslo, Norway, mm-hmm. at a banquet being held in his honor for all of his various for expeditions being, and exploits. For him being awesome. Right. 
Um, <laughs> the Norwegian government contacted him and told him about the Italia. Amundsen decided to come out of retirement to help search for the Italia. He was 55 by this point. Looking 85. Yes, and engaged to be married. So late bloomer for on the marriage front, but cool. Uh, he contacted... He was like, I was having second thoughts about this anyway. <laughs> Let, Let me go to go. the North Pole. Exactly. Uh, he contacted his old pal, Lincoln Ellsworth. Oh, okay, yes. To see if he could help, either with funds or by joining him or both. And Ellsworth said no. He's like, oh, no, really? Not going to help out with money. Oh, not going to help out with search. Okay. So, Amundsen instead... Why do I, I... I feel like I pronounce his name differently every That's single okay. time. Amundsen. Emmonson instead enlisted the a fellow Norwegian Frederick Peterson to help him. So, again, this timeline I know is weird. On June eighteenth, Emmonson Peterson and an additional crew of three took off from Norway. So this is a ways after. This is over three. Yeah, this is almost a month later. I'm guessing it's because it takes a while to coordinate the equipment and the plan and everything that you need. Um, Think of think of what it. Think of what would be involved today to plan this. Right? We're talking almost 100 years ago. Yes. So. Uh-huh. Uh, so they took off from Norway in a borrowed Latham 47 flying boat. So another... Um, Seaplane. Yeah, basically. Borrowed from the French Navy. A little less than three hours into their flight, the last transmission received from Amundsen's oh, crew no. was, quote, do not leave listening, end quote. That's literally the last anybody heard of them. Then there was radio silence, and the plane was never heard from, or was not heard from again. Uh, the search and rescue missions for the Italia were then broadened to include a search for Amundsen and Peterson and their crew, as it became clear that they too were also missing. So on June 20th, there was finally a breakthrough. So June 20th, remember, they crashed May 25th. Okay, I was trying to, I knew it was the end of May. I yeah, was trying almost to remember the exact a month day. later, there was a breakthrough as one of the Italian planes involved in the search for the survivors spotted the red stripe tent on the ah. ice. They dropped food to the survivors and other provisions, but were unable to land because of the conditions sure. surrounding on the ice surrounding the campsite. But, but yeah, doing the right, like, okay, we're going to drop off some things for you. Right. We'll, we'll get to you when we can. Right. You know, they, hang in there. And they actually continued to airlift supplies to them over the next several days sure. because it took until June 24th for a plane to be able to actually land. Now, unfortunately, the pilot, Einar Lundborg of Sweden, could only take one survivor with him because of the limitations of his aircraft. Now, Nobile insisted that it be Cecchioni, the guy with the two broken legs. Mm -hmm. He was the most critically injured. So he was like, look, take him. Unfortunately for Cecchioni, he was too heavy for the plane. So Lundborg was like, look, Nobile, you got to be the guy. We got to take you. And like I landed on this to take somebody. <laughs> you're, Somebody's you're the guy. coming. You're coming. I've with decided me. it's going to be you. Mm-hmm. So Nobile ended up being the first survivor evacuated from the campsite, and that ended up being kind of a controversial move because he was the captain of this whole exploration. Right. So the whole captain goes down with the ship. Now, to be fair, he he did have to be convinced of this. I'm, to well, be I'm the sure to to go. So yeah. anyway. Um, yeah, I don't doubt that. Now, Nobile insisted that Lindbergh immediately go back to the site as soon as he was dropped off to get uh, get get the next guy. Let's keep going with this. And so Lindbergh did. 
Unfortunately oh, for Lundborg, no. Jesus. his aircraft got stuck in the snow, and so Lundborg became yet another person trapped at the campsite. Now, at this point, because of the conditions at the campsite, rescue efforts had to be temporarily just suspended. So Lundborg had to wait it out with the guys. He basically swapped himself for Nobile, right? Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. Yeah. On Now, again, we're kind of bouncing back and forth. But still, on July 10th, oh my God. the two survivors from the search party that broke off, remember, from the other survivors, sure. oh my, yeah. were located by air, and their coordinates were shared with an icebreaker, which made their way to them. So Zappi and Mariano were rescued on July 12th. Zappi seemed to be doing actually pretty well, but Mariano looked exhausted and had to have his frostbitten right foot amputated. Mm, yeah. Now, there were rumors like, hey, why, um, why is Zappi in such good shape? Um, and there were rumors that he had eaten Momgren, and there was mm, cannibalism involved. Yeah. Um, but that actually all just appeared to be rumor and speculation. There was nothing really to substantiate that. They, See what beef jerky can do for you, folks. <laughs> it can it can make you it can make you last <laughs> in the frozen tundra that is the North Pole. So they relay uh, Zappi and Mariano relayed Momgren's last words to to people, which were apparently, "quote I will lie down in this pit to die. When the sea wave fills my ice grave with water, I will stay frozen in it until some ship comes find me." until some ship, sorry, finds me in this transparent coffin, end quote. Momgren was already pretty suicidal, right? Yeah, like, he was just like... He was pretty depressed. He's yeah. like, fine, leave me, let him find me in a block of yeah. ice one day. Now, that same day, July 12th, they were finally able to get the remaining survivors and Lundborg, who had joined them, from the campsite, a solid 48 days after the airship had crashed. I can't believe they've even... Well, they had had enough provisions provisions. themselves, and then they kept getting dropped. So, yeah. But just the elements alone. I know. It's not like they're wearing uh, North Face fucking equipment in 1928. They're Mm -hmm. probably wearing... I'm guessing, like, all wool stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Fur. Well, they did. They did have the fur from the polar well, bear plus too. They're, plus, they're they're that's true. Probably were fur. And that's stuff true. But but again, it's not like it was a performance equipment. No, that they had on. no wicking and no. Uh, yeah. There was no Under Armour that they were wearing. No. So, like I said, the rescue timeline is really hard to to put together and was also filled with rescuers needing to be rescued. Yeah, exactly. Poor coordination, other complications. So let's get down to the body count. Do you remember what I said the body count I think you said it was 17. 17. But what did I say about they rescued people? So... I'm guessing... Well, There were 16 crew members. Some of them got rescued. Right. So who else died? I'm guessing some more search party people. Rescuers, exactly. Um, So we're going to get down to the body count. So there were 16 people aboard the Italia when it crashed. Pamela died on impact, so he was actually the first casualty. Mm -hmm. Six others were killed when they floated away in Mm -hmm. the envelope. They were trapped in the envelope. And nine survived. So, So we're up to seven so far. Seven people died. Then Phil Malmgren died of exposure mm-hmm. on the search party, so now we're up to eight. Now the remaining eight and Nobile's dog, Tatina, all survived and were rescued. So our body count's only up to eight. As you'll recall, I said a total of people, 
of 17 people died. Only eight were on the actual airship, so that means the remaining nine casualties, more people than died from the crew, were all rescuers. Mm -hmm. This was such a treacherous rescue effort. Among the missing and dead were Amundsen and Peterson and their crew. The last of the casualties were a three-man crew that died when their vessel crashed in France after returning from the you Arctic. You kidding me? On September 29th, 1928. You got what? That's bullshit. They made it all the way back to France. <laughs> that sucks so hard. To crash and die. Yep. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. Now, like I said, Stephen did a lot more thorough research, much more technical research on all of this stuff. Um, And I have to apologize to him for not including it here. It was kind of an executive decision I made based on my own comprehension abilities and for the sake of storytelling. So, but well done, Stephen, on all the research. Yes, thank you very much. So when the survivors returned to Norway, they received a chilly reception. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, because they're Italian. Well, a couple things. Uh, 3,000 people actually met them when they when they arrived in Norway. Okay, we're off to a good start. But they blamed, the, these Norwegians blamed them, and more specifically, Nobile, for the death of Amundsen, their oh, national hero. Oh, okay. So they were none too thrilled. They're like, well, why did this Italian guy make it? And part of his crew didn't. And not only that, but we lost our guy, like our 55-year-old... <laughs> We lost our fifty-five-year-old. Like we lost our fifty-five-year-old, ninety-seven-year-old man. Yes, uh, explorer. Who's our national hero. hero? Right. Now in Italy, the everyday person actually viewed Nobile as a hero. Right. He, well, he had gone sure. on this expedition, managed to bring back at least some of his crew, half of his crew, and the dog, and then and Tatina. Yes. And he was greeted by 200,000 cheering Italians when he got back to Italy on July 31st. But the fascist government, who controlled the media, were upset at the loss of the Italia. It was an expensive airship. They were pissed off at it. And they were upset at Nobile's open criticism in follow-up interviews of Mussolini and his regime. Mm, so Nobile started opening yeah, his mouth up about having, the government. They were too that. thrilled. Exactly. Rumors in the press. Imagine if Twitter wasn't around back then. <laughs> yeah. Rumors in the press claimed Nobile's ineptness caused the crash in the first place, and a commission of inquiry was opened. I would have said to Mussolini, well, then you show me how to do it, fucker. <laughs> right? Like, like, why, you don't you get, why don't you get a North Pole in a fucking uh, Balloon, in an airship, <laughs> and why don't you try, yeah. like, asshole? Only one of the seven members of the commission was actually experienced in airships. Yeah, remember, this so is all part of the government. It's so. all yeah, it's all bullshit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they officially found Nobile responsible for the loss of the ship, the deaths of the crew members, and vilified him for allowing himself to be rescued first. They said that his inept piloting caused the crash, while Nobile himself insisted it was the faulty gas release valve that had iced up and then released excess gas. So. I was going to say, they're not necessarily wrong with what they're charging well, with. We're, not we're necessarily, still, but... We're still going here. So, as a result, Nobile resigned from the Italian Air Force, and he left Italy in 1931 to work for the Soviet airship program. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. He Soviet, yep. Mm. He published a book called With Italia to the North Pole that wasn't published in Italy until the fall of Mussolini during World War II. 
Um, as to what really happened to the Italia, it's actually still a matter of some speculation. What you're looking at? I'm looking up that book. Okay, with Italia to the North Pole. The North Pole. Why is this not like automatically to the North Pole with Santa? <laughs> <laughs> to the North Pole with Santa. Did you mean with Italy to the North Pole? No, no, I did no, not. With Italy. Anyway, we'll get. And, to yeah. <laughs> So, I, I want to read that if it's if it's available somewhere. So what? So, but that's how we know what happened at the site and all that was because of the survivors, right? Um, so as to what really happened to the Italia, it's still a matter of speculation. There's definitely thoughts outside of a fascist regime's determinations that Nobile really did make mistakes, including how he released gas in the ship when maybe he should have started engines. Or you also, have. you also have to remember. That airships are still a fairly new technology at the time, and there are only probably by this time. I want to say airships started um, in like the late 1800s. Mm-hmm. They they preceded planes, planes right? Mm-hmm. Um, but still, we're talking 30 years worth mm-hmm. of Technolo- I mean, technological development. Look at the look at the very first car, and then look at a car 30 years later. Yeah, it's you know, or any. Mm-hmm. So there there are only a certain amount of humans alive that can. Right. Operate this thing, right. and and maybe it was and it, it well, very that's well the could thing. have been. It, the whole strategy, his whole strategy, was questioned. Like, why did they go back above the clouds? And um, should he have really released gas when he did? Should should he have really gunned the engines or shut off the engines? Because you're when still he did? in the phase of trying to figure out how to maneuver this this ship. In, what in is the part, best thing to it's do? It's kind of a Monday morning quarterback sort oh, of situation, it absolutely is. right? But there's also speculation that his decision making decision making was clouded because he had been up for 72 hours straight prior to this crash. Yeah, so that there might was sleep deprivation yeah. to be called into question. There was actually a National Institutes of Health report on his sleep deprivation, what how it may have played into the whole thing. So whatever the cause, the Italia disaster shows what the human cost can be when trying to explore the harsh and unforgiving undiscovered regions of the earth. And that, my friends, is the story of the airship what? Italia. Thank you, Stephen. Yes, thank you very much, research. Stephen. That was a what a crazy story. Never heard of it before. No. Never, never. And just that rescue effort. Mm-hmm. I mean, just as up and down as the crash, right? Well, no, no pun intended, but I mean like the roller coaster, right? But I can't. The the whole time when you said there was what six countries involved and like fifteen hundred people yes. or something, I'm like, uh-huh. my first feeling was like, why are these people so special? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what? It, you know what it is is that. I think it's kind of the same idea of space exploration, that when someone's willing to put their life on the line for the sake of advancing human knowledge and technology and, and data gathering they'll, they'll and stuff, go do it. Pe- people respect that. And they should. I think it's like, imagine if um, uh, uh, one of the Apollo missions had gotten stranded on the moon. They would have sent people to go find, to try and rescue them. Like, that's what you do. You try and rescue people who are trying to help hum- advance humanity. That's at least there will always be people who feel that way. Sure, you know that that's a worthwhile effort. And considering fifteen hundred people went looking for them 
And I mean, nine people is nine people, but it was only nine out of 1500 people. I mean, it's still not great odds, but it's, um, I don't know. It, I, I feel like it was worth trying to find them. I just think oh, no, that they I, should I feel, have. I feel it was worth trying to find them. They should them, have coordinated like, it so yeah. much better. And there was a lot, a lot of balls dropped when it, when it came to like, why was, why did the Milano not listen for and intercept the um, radio communications? Oh, yeah, that was a whole true. other yeah, thing. That's right. That was I a whole about other that. thing. Apparently the Milano actually did intercept the Mayday, mm-hmm. but whoever it was, who was the radio operator didn't think it was them for some reason and ignored it. Like it was stupid. <laughs> well, it's going to be, there, there was some, <laughs> there was definitely are. some ineptness <laughs> yeah. in the rescue effort. Oh, I think it, sure. I think it's some guy in Newfoundland. This can't be them. <laughs> Jesus, that I mean, it's a so, what a crazy story. Yeah, and it's pretty wild. Uh, I'm never going to the North Pole. No, just for, <laughs> no, <laughs> and just and for. we will um, get into a couple people have uh, suggested the '96 Everest disasters. We will do that at some point. It's hard Not sure for if I know me. What that is. Well, we, we will get okay. to it. Um, it's hard for me sometimes. I do not have the exploration gene in me. Like the drive to be the first to do something or like uh, find something, be the person to leave my mark. And I, I don't know. But there are people who that is their drive. Well, right? it's, it's for uh, homo sapiens. It, it is literally in our DNA to be explorers. It's, it's part of who we are. I it's not it's that. not going. Well, it's not going to touch everybody, obviously. Yeah. But um I would have been the one who said, this cave is fine. Why do we need to leave? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and it might've been and that, you know, but mm-hmm. then, but, but that's exploring will always be a part of us yeah, for, I, for, I agree. forever. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I'm not going to be the trailblazer, right? <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but, but the, there, and there are certain instances in which I find it very noble space exploration. Absolutely. Like we places will, that we, nobody's ever been. I'm pretty sure. Cause there's a lot of time. I'm pretty sure we will be going to Mars in like the next decade or right? two. Yeah. That's, that's always been a thing. Um, even finding new places on the earth or under the sea. Oh yeah. Things like there's that. all sorts of places that we what still haven't I been. What I don't get and what I don't like, and we'll get into this when we get into Everest is people who just keep wanting to get to the top of Everest. That's hubris. Because it because it's already been explored, it's already, it's already been, been, been seen, and you're putting your own life at risk and the risk of other people, including indigenous peoples of the area. The I Sherpas know what you're talking. About. I know what you're talking about. Okay, now. so like I, I'm not okay with that, but this uh, I get. Although I do think hubris plays a part in it because people want to be the first. You know, they want to be the first to find well, it and stuff. Think of the ego that you would have to have to be like in 1928. 28. 28. Mm-hmm. With very limited technology to you, it's like, wow, look at this technology. Like, we have radios and like planes and right. shit. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but to us today, it's like, yeah, you guys got nothing. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, but, um, but yeah, it takes a certain amount of to be that person, you takes a certain amount some. of arrogance, mm-hmm. takes a certain amount of ego. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to be the guy. The uh, humble guy. It's, who's, it's yeah. just not, you know, it's, yeah. it's just not going Although to be. Although they might be the crew member. They might be. Yeah. Um, but yeah. There's a, it, it takes humility to be the crew member who's following the arrogant guy. Right. You know? To kind of keep him in check here and there. Well, or to just follow orders and mm-hmm. be one of the people who's... But yeah, anyway, that it's, it's an amazing story. And the whole 
callback to like Amundsen mm-hmm. being one of the early explorers who like badmouthed Nobile and then goes to look for him and then dies trying to find then him. Then tries, yeah. At and 55 or 97, depending on what he looks like. Look at what the first question that comes up when I look How at the book. How did Roald Amundsen die? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nobody knows. Well, well, we know. Well, but nobody's nobody ever. <laughs> we know. We know. Doing what? Right. Did he die? We knew the but circumstances. Did they crash and survive? And, and he I, just went missing. Right. And he never, missing, never, never found. Again, yeah. From what I could tell, anyway. Um, unless I missed something in Stephen's research again, very thoroughly researched. Well, this, um, this part of the Earth is just not very inhabited. So Mm-mm. it's not like somebody's just going to randomly come across yeah. him someday. No. So. But Italia.tass.com, if you want to see a very cool visual website of how everything unfolded, it, it's it's very well done. All right. But. Well, <laughs> I'm thank you again, Stephen. That was yeah. a fascinating story. And very much so. Much more interesting than tragic, I think, in my in my view. Yeah, I, I mean, it's... At least these people died doing something they were wanting to do. Yeah. So. Yeah. There, there's something to that. You know, I was thinking about, I was trying to think about the actual number. So 17 people died. That means nine rescuers died. Five. Oh, yes. So I was trying to, it was hard for me to figure out which rescuers died and that was equaling the nine. So we know the three people very sadly died when they got back home to France. So that's three. Um... Amundsen, Peterson, and their three crew members, that's eight. And then I remember hearing there was um, one dog sled party where one guy died. So that must be the total of nine. Okay. Anyway, sorry, just putting it together in my head. Like I said, it was really hard for me to follow. I don't know why. Stephen did a great job researching. I'm just the idiot who... I shouldn't be putting myself down. You are not an idiot. I should not be putting myself down. That's that's a that's poor my thing job. to do. It's my job to put me down. <laughs> Aww. No, it's just it, it was it was tricky for me to follow. Um, again, no reflection on Stephen. He did a great job. So, yeah, that's that's that. Yes. In beautiful laser printed black mm. and white. Yes, yes, very 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 beautiful. Looks exactly like what we used to have. Thank you. But anyway, if, Stephen, you get first dibs on the script if you want it. Um, <laughs> I even have international forever stamps to send it to you. There you go. In New Zealand. Um, and it will be beautifully printed, all scripts from now on, as opposed to the ugly inkjet. If anybody <laughs> has a script, you know what I'm talking about. They're so much prettier now. Well, that was the crashing of the Airship Italia. The Airship Italia. The Airship Italia. That's <laughs> That sounds The Airship Italia. The Airship Italia. <laughs> this has been another episode of All Bad Things. I'm David. I'm Rachel. We'll see you next week.